Hi, it's Jennifer Diane Ghostin, and welcome to Once Upon a Time in Adoptee Land. You may have wondered what reunion looks like from an adoptee's point of view, or be embarking upon taking that journey yourself to search for your first family, or simply want confirmation that you are not alone in your experience, wherever you are on the path of healing and pushing through a trauma. Wouldn't it be empowering to have many of your burning questions answered here? My next guest is from that generation who is asking the questions and getting the answers early in life. Younger adoptees all around the world are facing the big stuff like true champions, and I salute their courage. Her name is Anita Garber. And if you're a faithful listener, then you might guess that I met her in the Adoptee Voices writing group created by Sarah Easterly. Anita, among many wonderful things, is a professional counselor, a talented writer of the spoken word, and stepping up to the plate to help others maintain hope in their life. She accepted my invitation to share her experience and perspective as it relates to being a transracial adoptee in an open adoption and in reunion with her biological family. In this episode, she made me feel seen by asking about my experience. When that unexpectedly happens during a recording, I can only think to say, thank you. Allow me to introduce you to an identical twin, a lover of life, and someone who is pursuing her dreams, which absolutely involves identifying solutions within and beyond the adoption community. Anita, I have been waiting to have this conversation. I've been like so excited to talk with you and have you to be a guest on the show. How are you doing today? I'm I'm doing quite well, and it's an honor to have this conversation with you. I've been it's been something we've been talking about for the last few weeks, so I'm glad that it's finally happened. I have been sitting with some of the things you shared with me. Like I really have been thinking about them and. Before I jump into that, I, I want to say for the listener that you are a black transracial adoptee. You have an identical twin sister, right? Yeah. And you are in reunion as young as 30 years old, which I think is, well, I'm sure it has its challenges. But for someone like me, who's older, old enough to be your mother, I find that always fascinating when the younger generation has been able to get answers to their questions sooner or some of their questions sooner rather than later. Mm. I know one of the questions that I had been sitting with, I have been sitting with since we last talked is, I just think it's a brilliant question that you, you shared with me, and that is, who are you because you were adopted? or because of your adoption, like that, I don't know if I ever thought about that before. And and so I like to start there, if you don't mind, like where does that question come from? That's a large question in and of itself. <laughs> I think for that particular question, I was, I was reflecting on some of the prompts and some of the questions that are being asked in some of the adoptee spaces that I'm in. And I think we often assume 
or we correlate a, a certain lens to our adoption, but we never ask, okay, so we say, this is who I am, or these are the tools or the gifts or the things that I've struggled with with my adoption, but what are, let's take that a step further and look at our lives because we are adopted. What are the things that it has given us? What are the gifts and talents and abilities? What are the connections and relationships that we've been given? Basically, what are the gifts, strengths that we've been given because we were adopted? Yes. I've been asking myself that question, and I think I'm going to be answering that for a while, (laughs) like just looking back over my my life. And I know we met in Adoptive Voices, the writing group created by Sarah Easterly, and you are such a talented writer, and I love how you read, and, and I look forward to you sharing one or two of your pieces with the listener I think that will be just exceptional to this episode. Um, Why don't you just tell me about your journey, wherever you want to start, and and really how much you want to share? So a little bit about me. I am a Black transracial adoptee. I have a twin sister. My twin sister and I were adopted at the age of four. We were fostered to adopt. I've been with my adoptive family since I believe I was several days old. Grew up in South Central Pennsylvania on a farm. I have two other biological siblings, a half-brother and a full brother. One is five years older. The other one is approximately 15, 16 years older than I am. My adoptive family, there are four other siblings. Um, I have three brothers and a sister. Uh, my twin sister and I are the co-youngest. So growing up in South Central Pennsylvania, growing up in a small, semi-rural uh, Mennonite farming community, grew up on a farm, went to private school, all my, actually all my life until now, grad school, going to a state university. Yeah, I would say I, I'm in reunion with my biological family. That's what I've been in reunion for about the past Hmm, six, six years, mm. I think. I think visitation ended, in my mind, visitation ended when we were like 11. I think just due to some inconsistencies and some just transportation challenges and all of those things. And then my twin was the one who initiated contact when I think we were, I'm going to say between 18 and 20. And then I recently, um, have, or more recently, have chosen to touch base and begin relationships with my biological family, which has brought a lot of things. (laughs) Were you in an Um, open adoption? Yes, it was an open adoption. Okay. You want to talk about some of the challenges of that? I think the open adoption? Yes. Or like the reunion part? Well, both, whichever one you want to start with. I don't know that I necessarily see my any challenges with the open adoption. My 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 question, I, I would say, um, is that it being in reunion, like choosing choosing to be in relationship and choosing what that relationship looks like, I think for me is hard. Figuring out what what is what do we both want this to be? Mm. What's there, and what what do we working together want this to be and figuring out what that looks like and then the time and investment and all of those things. Because for me, my biological mom is 
well, I believe she's one of nine siblings. And so I was told that I had like 64 first cousins. I haven't met all of them. I've met a bunch of them. Um, And I've met a lot of my aunts and my uncle. You said 64 cousins? Uh, 64 first cousins. And that was the last one. Yeah. That's (laughs) a lot. (laughs) So I haven't yet gone to a family reunion, but I've kind of been playing with the idea of like, what what would that look like? Like at 30 years old, entering into saying hi. Like, (laughs) how are you? Yeah, so I haven't, I think it's something I would like to do. So I would say that the next time I hear about a family reunion taking place, I will do what I can to be there and, yeah, mm-hmm. show up and see what it looks like to make a, build a relationship or at least an introduction. We'll, we'll start with that. We'll start with an introduction to right. people I've, I'm a part of, but I've never really known. Yeah, that ought to be pretty interesting. Because I, I would imagine you would see people, meet people where you see mirroring and things that you share in common, maybe even um, synchronicities. I'm always fascinated by that. I saw oh my them goodness. Yeah, in my birth family. Yeah. I don't know where you are in terms of uh, relationship with your birth family. But one thing that I noted, so I went down was in Georgia. I was meeting with my birth mom this was the first like face-to-face meeting in 20 no 15 18 years I didn't really know what to expect I have a box and it has a huge question mark in it like I don't I don't really know what to expect and so I went down and I met my biological mom I met an uncle I didn't know that I had and I met my grandmother I didn't know existed or still living and 13 days later my grandmother passed and so I got to go down to the funeral and meet more of the family and hang out with the cousins. And I found myself coming away from that, answering a question I didn't know I had. And I came away from that saying, I make sense. I love that. I love how you put that. I make sense. Yeah. But after that interaction, after those relationships, I came away being like, oh my goodness, like, my puzzle piece that I, my puzzle that I thought was complete is like glazed and framed and hanging on a wall. <laughs> like it felt, yeah, it felt complete. And I was like, this, I'm, I finally, I finally make sense. Mm. Because all of my aunts, like they're creative, they're real estate, they've been in fashion and design and like cooking and all of these creative explorations and vocations. And I'm, that's, Knowing me, like I, I love, I love being creative. I love colors. I love music. I love dancing. I love all of these expressions, and I finally understand where they come from. Right. That was really, really, really healing. Yeah, it sounds like it was a gift. The word you used mm-hmm. earlier is coming up for me now. In reunion, that was a gift to be able to see that, experience that. Hmm. You have challenges in reunion. Challenges are just questions, I would say. Unanswered. Unanswered questions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. What are they? I think they're just, what like, one, figuring out how, how to engage in deeper relationship. Two, what do I want? What do does the family want or the individuals that I'm wishing to engage in a relationship with? want out of the relationship do they want to be in a relationship I haven't actually asked some of those questions and I know some of them I don't need to because they've expressed saying hey your family 
and your family for life and whatever you need is covered and like they've been very inviting and warming and welcoming and affirmative and all of those things but there's others that I'm like oh like I don't know anything I don't know much about you and I don't know I want to know more but I don't know what that looks like so I think there's a hesitancy in taking a first step because I don't know what that looks like or where that might go right so I recently went to a reunion family reunion on my maternal birth side and like I didn't have to ask the question what do you want in a relationship with me because it was so clear by them even inviting me. Like I was even invited to the planning, like a Zoom planning meeting. And I just remember thinking, yeah, they want something close to what I want because I would have done the same thing. I would have invited them to my reunion or or an event that I wanted them to attend so we could get to know each other better. So when you say you have questions about how they want it to look, I'm guessing that there have maybe been times where you were unclear as to what they wanted. Is that what I'm hearing? Or maybe I think there's an invitation to relationship, and I don't know what that looks like. Okay. Yeah, reunions, I think, are tricky. And you asked earlier, you're not sure where I am. So I am in reunion with both sides but clearly my paternal side does not seem to I guess extend the same sort of invitations that I get from my maternal side you know whether we're talking Mm -hmm. about being included in an event or being called you know instead of me doing all the calling you know that kind of thing Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I am so into reciprocity. I I don't think one side should be doing more than the other. Like it's a give and take, and mm-hmm. and so I do see a, a noticeable difference between the two sides. It's harmonious on my paternal side for sure. I I, I know I believe that whenever I pick up the phone, they're gonna respond. You know, but are they gonna necessarily initiate a phone call to me? Not so much. Yeah, I think reunions, I'm constantly looking at, okay, what's possible? And just like with the family I grew up with, I'm closer with some than others. And that's just family dynamics, you know, like it doesn't have to be just the um, biological family where you are closer with some than others. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I think that's just going to be the case no matter what families we're talking about and what's possible with one particular family member may be a whole lot more than another. I don't look at it like the whole family. I kind of look at it as individuals. So this first Mm -hmm. cousin I may really be tight with from my biological family and not so much with another first cousin, if that makes sense. It does, yeah. Well, I um, remember a question that that came up for me behind something very powerful that you said. Like, I, I'll, I'll explain the question that came up for me. But you said sometimes you forget you're an adoptee. Do you want mm-hmm. to explain that a little bit, what you meant about it? I, think I would say sometimes it's not the lens through which I see my life. Like, sometimes... Sometimes I think with in adoptee circles, yes, it's very that's, that's a very clear, definitive 
you're in, you're, that's where you are. Mm. But then on other times, it's not something I'm cognizant of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just not something I'm cognizant of all the time. I find that it, it comes up typically in adoptee spaces or when I'm engaging or asked questions in, regarding any racial disparities or racial upheaval happening in the nation or around the world that people want more clarification in or want some form of assistance in navigating, which is hard and challenging. But I would say that a question, that thought kind of came up because I was like, oh, like this past week, I haven't really once thought that um, I'm adopted mm-hmm. or that that. Yeah, what came this week? Right. Yeah, what came up for me? I just consider that a part of my identity. Like I think about it. I think I think about it like every day, and just like I think about, I'm a black woman, right? I'm from Chicago. Like these things, I pretty much think about. I mean, not dwell on it, but it, it'll come mm-hmm. up some kind of way. Maybe something I see, or something that I hear will say, oh, yeah, I'm adopted, <laughs> you know, or, oh, yeah, I'm a black woman. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, I thought, yeah, like through the years, I identify so much more than just an adoptee and, and that are they like life distractions that would keep me from remembering? And and I would I say, yeah, I kind of think so when I was at work. Or whatever I was doing, just living life, being a parent, I wasn't thinking I'm an adoptee. So mm-hmm. maybe it's the place I'm in now where, yeah, I'm thinking about it more. Because, of course, I'm podcasting, I'm talking to adoptees, I'm a part of adoptee voices, and all these things that are adoptee-related. So mm-hmm. there you go. Like, <laughs> I can't forget that I'm an adoptee, but I, I understand what you mean. I, I love that you that you articulated so clearly the space that you're in and some of the life distractions. Because I was, I think, maybe this is more telling than I'm understanding at this point, but I'm going to go ahead and say it. But I also give myself permission to disagree with myself in the future. <laughs> so I was, I'm working on a book for adoptees. And I wrote it. It's almost done. Well, quote unquote, done. First draft. Um, and I was going over it. And I really, I was like, this is great. But then I had the thought, I'm like, but there's nothing about adoptees in it. There's nothing that addresses the process or the feelings or the emotions. And like, I'd really, I'd written the full, well, almost the full draft and not actually included anything. So I think that might be a picture of kind of articulate, more clearly articulating that sometimes I feel like my adoption is an add on mm-hmm. or like me being adoptee. It's, a, it's like a, it's a second, it's a second thought. It's an afterthought, but it's not. Yeah, but I, I, I loved how you articulated the, the distractions because I clearly get that being in grad school and working and having an internship and working on a book and doing other things besides that. There's a lot going on. And so it's not always, yeah, at the forefront. So what tools, we'll say, have you used to best navigate your journey as a transracial adoptee? Counseling. Yeah. I'm in social work. And I would highly, advocate, highly, highly, highly advocate for counseling. If you don't have a counselor, 
I would highly recommend getting one. If you don't want to get one, find a mentor. Find someone to speak into your life who has more life experience than you that you're willing to learn from and walk to life together with. So I would say counseling has been the biggest tool that I've used. And I'm not biased because I am a counselor, but I would find that it's also been really helpful in processing finding and feeling and validating emotions and experiences, but also having another person having an objective perspective on life and just being able to walk through life together. And if it's not counseling for you, maybe it's finding a mentor, someone who has lived longer than you and has more life experience to, to walk, walk life together with. I would say another tool, I don't know if they like the word tool for this, but I think it works is, is faith. Um, I know faith in church and God is really challenging for a lot of adoptees. But for me, I would say my faith has been my safe space. Navigating my adoption with God has probably been the number one. Like, that's the reason that I'm alive. Um, because if it wasn't, if I hadn't found a safe space when I was in second grade, I don't, I don't think that I would still be here. Um, actually, I would probably say I can guarantee you that I wouldn't still be here aside from just seeing the move of God in my life. Um, but I know that for some adoptees, that's a really challenging and really hard, hard space um, due to a variety of experiences. And for that, I want to say I'm sorry. Um, I'm sorry for the hurt that you've experienced and the ways that you've been treated that haven't been been loving and been um, honoring and um yeah, I'm sorry, uh, but I would also encourage and invite you to find, continue to find people with whom to walk life with, because I think those people in those places can be some of the most healing, but also some of the most hurtful places. And I think it's important not to give up hope on things changing. So I know that if you have a history or experiences with church of being harmful or hurtful for you, I know it's hard to hope or hard to see beyond that, but I would encourage you uh, maybe to troll um, or just to reach out to someone that's, that you know uh, that could walk, walk this journey with you. Thank you for sharing that. I often think that a mentor doesn't have to be someone that you're face-to-face with. I, every month I choose a mentor, a virtual mentor, and I, I highly recommend that. Like I'll just pick someone. This month is Mitch Album. He wrote the book Tuesdays with Maury. I think the that so, is one of the best books ever written. <laughs> yes, and I think it's the 25th anniversary, and it's it, it was like number one. This because mm-hmm. he added a chapter to it, and and it's a powerful book about. Well, you read it, but for the listener, it for me, it's a powerful book about what's important in life, and sometimes we don't recognize that until. We appear to be closer to death. I think it's always good to recognize sooner rather than later some important things about being here. And I definitely believe in God, and I believe that my spirituality has definitely been a a major source, a big source or a big tool in my box um, to navigate this thing called life. So I appreciate you sharing that. I think transracial adoptees, at least the ones that I have met and talked with at length, it's very 
challenging when you are a black child raised by white parents, absent of exposure. I'm just going to say enough exposure to the black culture upon reaching adulthood. Was that your experience? I would say that's continually my experience. Okay. I was not introduced to, exposed to the black community culture, I would say, almost till high school. And even then, that was small. So I, I would say that I, in some ways, it's something I've chosen not to navigate necessarily. It's something I've, I'm open to navigating, but I haven't decided to fully jump into and connect with the black community. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had a guest on last year, Corey Quinn. He's a transracial adoptee. And he said, like, he got none of the black culture growing up. And it would not be until he went to college and joined the black studies organizations, or I should say the black student organizations and, mm-hmm. and really like did a deep dive to, to try to catch up. And now like at 30 something, he, he feels like finally he's in a place where, you know, I, I kind of know what's going on with being a black person, a black man. And it was, it's really when he shares his experience, it's, it's heartbreaking to me because I think as a black person growing up in a black family, you know, I don't have that extra layer or extra challenge mm-hmm. to deal with. And I, and I'm like, I, yeah, it deeply saddens me when I hear of that being an experience of a black adoptee. It's challenging to navigate, like especially I think as an adult, and even professionally, I find that it's it's challenging. I get I often get comments about I'm I'm working in counseling in clinical mental health, and I get some clients that say, "Oh, who are, who who would identify as African American or Black," and say, "Oh, I didn't know that there's a Black counselor here," and so with that comes certain, I would say, expectations. Okay. And I find myself wondering if and when and how to have a conversation about, so I hear you saying this, but what does it mean to you? What does it look like to you? What is What comes along with that statement of being Black? What does it mean to be Black in that space? Um, and to let them know that I probably don't meet those expectations, qualifications, or criteria. Mm-hmm. Do you feel as but though... Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, you're good. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to ask you uh, a question about belonging versus fitting in, because that is often coming up with me. Like, I, I'm often Ooh. asking myself through the day, am I fitting in or am I belonging? It could be any group I'm in. And so in your family growing up, did you feel like you belonged or did you feel like you were fitting in? I would say neither. Okay. But that's predominantly because of the, my, the lens through which I saw my life and the world as a young adoptee, childhood, ado- child adoptee from like 
second grade through middle high school. And my lens was the lens of survival. So it like, I wasn't, I wasn't, I was clearly not saying, do I belong? Do I fit in? I was kind of in reaction and saying, I, well, I got to the point of being in reaction where I was like, I, I, who I am, what I am is not good enough. Um, and so I made a list of characteristics and decided to adapt, uh, modify my behavior to meet those characteristics of someone else who would fit in or blend in or not be noticed or not get disciplined for coloring outside of the lines or not knowing necessarily how to count or do math correctly. So I would say I, I didn't feel like I fit in and I didn't feel like I belonged because my lens was survival because I believed the core of who I am, who I was, that I, who I was wasn't wasn't good. Would you say you had a happy childhood? I don't remember most of my childhood. I would say my earliest cognitive memories would be first grade. Mm-hmm. And they are 50-50. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What about for you? Would you say that you, you, were, you had a happy childhood? I would. I would, but the more I'm learning about kind of how I'm wired, like my personality type, which I'm doing through the Enneagram, I'm really working on that. I am more of a thinker than a feeler, which simply means I didn't do a lot of feeling about what was happening to me. I was just kind of taking notes, right? Like, okay, these are my adoptive parents and they seem to be doing a really great job at working you know, being productive citizens and teaching me right from wrong and they're meeting my needs. So the facts of the matter were, yeah, everything is fine. Now, when I kind of lean into what does my story feel like to me, like I still would say I had a happy childhood, but there were a lot of things emotionally that were not considered uh, important, like like what what it, what you what does feel like it have to do with it? You know, let's just get this job done, and that's what I did. And and now I find that it is important to see, like, check in on how I'm feeling about something, and use that as information, like relevant data, to process my story, my journey. Mm-hmm. You know, so yeah, I had a happy childhood. In the sense that I no abuse, there was no alcoholism. You know, some of the things that a lot of people in their families have to uh, deal with and um, are subjected to that are quite harmful. It was never dangerous, you know. So I look at, yeah, it was pretty good, you know. My parents valued education, and their their values in general were just decent, right? So. I got all of that. Going back to that question, who am I because I was adopted? Like, it's all of that, which I do reflect on that. Like, yeah, like that, that's a lot of good stuff, you know, where your parents want you to have the best education. They want you to live a meaningful life and they kind of show you how they're doing it and you have some guidance there. At the same time, I know emotions and feelings are very important too. I think that it's important to ask someone, how do you feel? Not just, what do you think? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. What's your journey like been with, like exploring those emotions and feelings? 
up and down. Yeah, like I'll I'll think recently I've been thinking about the two year old because I was in foster care my first two years. A two year old kind of knows who's who and what's going on and to be in a foster home with five kids. I imagine it being loud, you know, kind of busy, four boys and one girl. And then leaving that home and going to a home with two parents who were old enough to be my grandparents, and I'm an only child. Like, I just picture a two-year-old, like, what's going on? You know, like, yeah. And that often makes me kind of sad because, and I'll use my grandson, when he was one of my grandsons, when he was two, and he stayed with me for the weekend, and we had a ball. We went to the park, and we played. We just had a great weekend. But when his mother came to pick him up, he couldn't have been more happy to see her. Again, I go back to the two-year-old and me, that inner child is still in my body somewhere. Why didn't my mother come pick me up, you know, ever? Like, why did I remain in this home? Like, so I'm sitting with the feelings of that. Like, I can't recall being two and that happening, you know, leaving the foster home and going to my permanent home. But I can imagine it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can imagine this two-year-old wondering, like being this two-year-old being sad. And then adjusting. As adoptees, we do that whole adaptation thing. And we're, mm-hmm. And for me, I wasn't harmed. You know, these two new people, these strangers were, were kind. You know, they bought me things and I ate every day and on and on through the years. It, it, it was a safe place. But when we think about attachments and them being disrupted, I'm sure that mm-hmm. plays a major part in all of our relationships going forward, right? Oh, 100%. <laughs> like, I'm not going to get too close to you because, you know, I may not, this this may not work out, you know, like I may not be here anymore. And how attached do I get to you, like these new parents? I don't know how attached I need to get to you because I might be moving again. So I've been sitting with what that, imagining what that feels like. Because I went through that. You know, I went, I know I felt some kind of way. Experiencing that early pre-verbal attachment trauma. Yeah. Even verbal attachment trauma and just the ways that it's disrupted um, emotions and understandings of connections to people I like that you're asking me these questions <laughs> as you're my guest but I I think it does make for I guess a balanced conversation because we're both adoptees we're both aware of the similarities in the traumas that we've experienced and and I'm guessing that there are plenty of listeners who are also adoptees who can relate or it resonates. And so they, they, they're getting it from both of us. And that's, that's pretty nice. Yeah. I think also like the point of these conversations is understanding. And I think it's really important for us to be able to learn from each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that, that's, that's done through these kind of conversations where there's, yeah interest and camaraderie and respect and 
yeah, mutual interest in the other person's life and journey and experiences. Yeah. Yeah, I feel very seen right now in this conversation with you, so I thank you. And I just wanted to ask you, do you have a specialty as a counselor? I don't yet. (laughs) (laughs) For our listeners who don't know, and I don't know if you know, actually, um, I'm currently pursuing a master's degree. Anticipated graduation date is May 5th, so then I'll have a master's in social work, and I am planning on becoming a registered expressive art therapist because I find that for me, art and creativity gives words to so much things that we haven't been able to verbalize and like pre-verbal trauma is stored in our brain and just the way that the ability to be artistic and creative in those spaces is able to tap into those things and bring healing and hope and give people a voice is something that I, I really, really am passionate about. So that's what I'm aiming to. Well, congratulations. That's great. Yes. Yeah. I'm excited for you. I'm excited for you and your book as well. So I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, the book actually goes, um, it's due on Monday to the publisher for the first draft. And so, yeah, it's, I was like, so last, the beginning of the year, I was like, oh, I'm going to write a book. It's not that easy. I was like, yep, we can be done in like six months. No, this is, um, approximately a year and a half later and it's going in 24 hours to the publisher for the first like editing that's wonderful Um, i'm I'm super excited um it's a it's a 40-day devotional a little bit about the book um it's a 40-day devotional uh an invitation for people to process trauma in the presence of god and taking taking areas of like guilt shame rejection identity mastering control and intimacy and talking about some of the ways that we've ex- we as adoptees have experienced or not experienced those things and the ways that that has informed or shaped who we are. Mm-hmm. Um, but then also doing activities where I'm using expressive arts to like process some of those things rather than having you like journal. Um, I'm super, I'm super excited and I'm super, I'm, I'm really, really grateful for all the people who played a role in that. And I, yeah, I think, I think spirituality is something that we can we can all benefit from. I'll yeah. say that mildly. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, I think maybe having like a group conversation of some of the questions you asked me today would also be really really interesting, um, just to see as a whole or in part. I think is because we can never really get all the adoptees together. Um, what what are the things that have been helpful? What are the tools that have been helpful in the adoption queue for adoptees to mm-hmm. navigate their journey? And what are some things that we we now as older adoptees can do to help bring and bridge connections for people who might not have those resources or those relationships that we we ourselves have found so instrumental and crucial to our development and our journeys. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna have to have you back, Anita. Simple as that. I hope you'll you'll come back. <laughs> I think if, if when we do another one, I would love to hear hear some of your pieces and your story because I feel like this this wasn't as balanced as I was hoping because I would love to hear so I've heard one of your pieces and just hearing some of your stories story today i have I think I have a lot more questions for you, <laughs> and I would love to love to hear more of your journey and like yes, yes, I see you 
and I would love to hear you because you are heard. And I know you're giving this space so that other people can be heard, but I want you to know that this is also an invitation for you to speak because you have a voice and it is important and it does matter. Thank you, Anita. And we'll do that. So what has been the most rewarding thing about being better connected to the adoption community? The majority of the adoption spaces that I'm in involve creative writing in some capacity or are around writing, such as adoptee spaces, like you mentioned earlier. So I would say empowering my voice has been one of the most rewarding things about being connected to the adoption community, honing my voice and also engaging in difficult conversations, such as the one we're having presently. (laughs) Because I find that a lot of my life and some of the things that my, my twin has challenged me on is that either for a lot of my life, I was ignorant of some of the challenges or I just was oblivious to them. And I would say that embracing and stepping into adoption communities, I am no longer able to be ignorant and I can no longer choose to be oblivious to some of the conversations and to do and to some of the events, circumstances that are impacting us as adoptees, whether that be state or nationwide. And so that's been really, really helpful and really, really challenging. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it's been able to, yeah, hone and form and inform who I am and who I want to become um, and giving me a voice, but also empowering me to understand the needs that are present that I can do something about. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, I'm so glad I met you. And, you know, you're just such a great writer and you being present in the group, how many times now? Uh, two or three, I think. <laughs> yeah. Two or three cohorts. Yeah, that's great. Like, I know the last cohort seven, I was so glad you got in there. Kind of at the last minute, I was so glad to know that you were going to join us again. And and I've had a chance to hear your reading, your words, and I love the way you read and I guess as we start to wrap things up, and I know you are going to share two pieces, is there anything that I didn't ask you that you want to share? No, but there is, I, I was curious because you talked about your attachment and awareness of emotions and the placement of people in your formative years. And I'm curious what, if anything, has changed as being from being a part of adoption communities for you? Mm. Well, one thing for sure is that I can feel myself being far more empathetic than I was in past years. You know, I come from a career in law enforcement. As a detective, that is not a feelings (laughs) supportive job. I mean, it's about the facts. It's about uh, finishing, completing an investigation and getting as many of the questions that are necessary answered and not so much about how people are feeling. And so now, you know, with 
my connection to the adoption community, like attending conferences and being in support groups and and you name it, especially since the pandemic. So since the last couple of years, I spent a lot of time every week either talking, mostly talking with adoptees, but also the other members of the constellation. And, and so I am hearing sometimes really heartbreaking stories, mm. but I don't have, like, I can just sit in those feelings. I can sit with them. I know it's not going to destroy me and, and I can be far more empathetic than I could like in a career as a police officer. Right. So mm-hmm. it, yeah, that has definitely been, I, I am able to really like feel like be sad be even joyous because because some stories are 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 really full of joy but one thing I know I'm not thinking all the time yeah you know like I I'm clearly moving more into being in balance with feeling and thinking and I'm really good at thinking (laughs) so Mm -hmm. now I want to get really good at feeling did that answer your question
911 will tell you that transplants will change your life expectancy. And so there I was at four years old with a ruler in one hand, apnea monitor in the other, hands too full to reach out and ask for help, ask to learn how to play, how to dance or sing. And so I learned to believe that I was alone and that I needed to become something other to fit in and that relationships coincide with manipulation and distance was best if I wanted the breath in my lungs to move and my chest to rise and fall. Yet all institutions want to teach you how to read and writing is required. When I put pen to paper, I bleed. Hey, adoption. I was born brokenhearted and expected to be whole. Wow, so powerful. Mm. So whenever you're ready. So the second piece, the prompt for this one, was how does it feel to be adopted? Or what does adoption feel like? The title of this piece is called If Electric Fences Had Wings. If electric fences had wings, that's how it feels to be adopted. If lightning dreamed of being domesticated, it would be an electric fence. No lightning dreams of being a domestic electric fence. Yet all fences yearn for the freedom found in the sky. Electric fences are grounded. And that's how it feels. I don't need a lightning strike to feel a power surge, nor a hand on a trigger to feel the tension. I was born in the dirt and then set up to be tested, to see if the voltage of my skin could withstand the current. I don't need to be loaded to be full. I was born black in a pale world, nor do I need a target to aim for. I was a token of face, not being or a person with feelings that mattered. What matters was that I could match the pace, create the space and be something different that put coins in the coffers of those who wanted to believe in diversity without wanting the current voltage to change. Electric fences don't have wings. Their posts mark the boundaries they themselves cannot inhabit. I was born alive and I've been wired ever since and people wonder why my face shows my feelings when I'm feeling blue or out of sorts. My face looks like a post you hitch your horses to if you need a buggy or a carriage at rest. Have you ever touched the current of a wire or been struck by lightning? EMTs and counselors all will say that they were shook. I'm in shock and it's a feeling that stays along with you after the current passes through you. Electricity never sleeps, it's always on. Something's wired, fired, or dead. I'm not triggered, but conducted, not monopolized, but maintained. You see my story, like electricity, I was brought to be connected. Paired to be wired, set in space to separate, charged to protect, marked for property, given for safety, and set in place to enforce rules of which I cannot read. Lightning is electricity with wings. And like the current, I run on. Electricity with wings. I accompany the summer rains, the gray clouds are my cover, the summer air my pillow, I'm ready for the night. Rain moves in from the west, thunderheads form and shake the earth with their sound. People hutter indoors while few give chase, and I follow. I'm electricity with wings to soar. On summer days, wedding days, and long summer solemn days where many funerals were held, not bound by the will or might of man, I arc the sky in light, in color, in all. Born with an abandon, taught to touch the tallest tree, revered and feared and honored. Marker of, of property, giver of safety, shook to the core. Play nice with others, my mother always said. Electric and skin don't mix well. Because mixed with sand, it makes glass. I was brought to be connected, chosen to be protected, given tools to set the course of space. I now inhabit. Lightning is electricity with wings. And like the current, I run on. Mm. That was electric. <laughs> <laughs> I love how you read too. It's just strong. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. I hear it spoke. Like I, I hear it spoken. 
So I want to communicate it in the way that I hear it. Right. You do that so well. Thank you. Thank you. I'm not remembering what the prompt was for this, but I think it was kind of similar to the other two. I was looking at your childhood as an adoptee and like, what would you tell your childhood self? Mud pies. Make a mud pie, she said. Hands like windmills mix the water and mud in the roadside paddle. Mama, I don't know how. What's in front of you, she said, her voice quiet, gentle. Water, mud, make a mud pie, she repeated. I remember like it was yesterday, cotton candy, carnival fries, funnel cake and rainstorms, hide and seek. And my mother's voice loud in my ear. When you don't know what to do, make a mud pie. Many children create hours of delight, creativity, excitement, fantasy, making mud pies when they make imagination meets reality. That's a mud pie. Broken hearts, mismatched tennis shoes, mashed potatoes, and mud pies. The world hasn't been kind to you. The answer to the statement is a mile long and never ends with a Y. We say it's a story and it's a narrative, but we have to live between the space of H and Y. But who is going to put the W in history and the narrative on me or you because our narrative doesn't fit the story that's presented to us? The narrative that our melanin speaks by the way our voices disrupt the narrative of history or comes in the face of statistics. My mother said you will always be a mud pie. You will always be a mud pie. You need to be okay with getting messy. And there are four rules for making mud pies. One, you need to be okay with getting messy. Two, know what you're working with. Three, natural is always best. And four, be okay with you. As children, we are taught the combination of water and mud and something else, an unnamed substance that creates a substantial entity is called a mud pie. Mud pies require substance, something more tangible than water, and you need to be okay with making a mess. I know the boxes of our lives and that we feel everything. Our melanin feel everything from A to Z and the lines aren't always straight and sometimes we get to A and have our S's handed to us, and that's okay. My mother said at four years old that you need to be okay with making messes. The second rule of making a mud pie is that you need to know what you're working with. As children, we created mud pies and we believed in the impossible. We believed in magic and miracles and we created them day after day after year after year after year. And we knew our elements. We knew what they did. We knew that we had the ability to create something magical. And so I want to encourage you that wherever you go, know that you have what you need to create something magical as long as you know what's around you. And what's within you. That you are someone's dream living in full color in this reality. The third rule, as my mother told me, for making mud pies is always work with natural things. Nature, like yourself, is a gift. So learn to create from what's within and what's given. And what's in front of you. The fourth rule for making mud pies is to be okay with getting messy. At four years old, I didn't have gloves when my mother told me to make a mud pie. And I told her I don't know how. She said, what's within you and what's around you, use it. Since the age of four, I have learned and am learning that a lot of mud pies, a lot about mud pies, and mud pies is the stuff of life. It's the feelings of shame, guilt, abandonment, lack of knowing. It's otherness. It's my history, my story, my crappy moments, and where I am right now. But using what's inside of me, what's in front of me, I have created magical moments. And looking back on my life, I now see no monuments, no masterpieces, but I see a trail. 
I see a trail marked by mud pies, symbols of growth, chaos, healing, and change. Messy, nuanced, substantial. Make a mud pie. You have what you need to create. Thank you so much, Anita, for sharing your three pieces. This has just been so much fun. It's been a good time being with you and hearing your perspective. I love hearing from the younger generation. And so thank you so much for having this conversation with me. Oh, my goodness. My honor. Thank you so much for inviting me. I get excited whenever I hear that an adoptee is writing and publishing their work. When Anita shared that her book was going to the editor, I know the nervousness of that experience. It's sometimes scary to keep going, but somehow you can do it. She was transparent in how she first approached her adoption journey, but has now found many ways to see things with a new lens by being better connected to our community. I loved hearing her laughter at times and the willingness to be vulnerable and honest. It is the younger generation that encourages me to keep doing what I do. It is an honor to witness their contributions, and I know that things will continue to change for the better because of their great work. It was Anita that first posed the brilliant question to me, who are you because you were adopted? I will likely be answering that question for a lifetime. Thank you, Anita, for having this conversation with me. Again, I am in awe of what your generation has come to teach those from mine. I am listening to you, learning your wisdom, and want you to know that you have my unwavering support. I encourage everyone to have at least one person in your life that challenges old patterns of thought and allow you to take a look at a new way of thinking about having once been a child of circumstance. I am certain that that somebody will likely be younger than you. If you seek to be an ally of the adoption community, we hope that you will consider making a donation to keep the show going at patreon.com forward slash adopteeland. Your contribution allows a weekly episode free of advertisement and is greatly appreciated to add a valuable resource to the adoption community. Thank you for being here.